All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 397. Jason Lingren is with me and Mr. Wayne McCroy is back with his new book. The title of the book is The Demic of Pan. And he does what he always does. He breaks things down in a way that offers a mind to think differently about the world around them. Uh, Maybe the way of thinking that you learned in school and other places isn't quite enough to wrap your mind around the world we're now entering. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a chilly good morning. Have you had time to skim through this, Jason? Wayne Wayne sent me the transcript. I've skimmed it once so far. I just looked at the chapter titles, and uh, Wayne and I have talked about various aspects of this on the live stream. All right. Welcome, Wayne. Good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me back. All right. Before we get in, give us a quick breakdown where people can find it. I'm assuming that you'll be in comments, dropping links and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll definitely drop all the links and stuff in the comments section uh, over on Crow 777 Radio. Uh, People can find actually the books are available. The new books available on Amazon right now. Uh, It should be hitting all the other marketplaces very soon. I don't know if it's there quite yet. Usually it takes three, four weeks before it hits the other marketplaces. So it should be rolling out there anytime now. Uh, so all you got to do is like search up either my name or the title of the book and it should come up in your browser. So, you know, it's available out there. It's available. Uh, you can get a digital download. Uh, you could order the paperback book or it's also available as a hardcover book, uh, which is a nice new feature that I have available to me. So, uh, you know, people could check that out there. And if they're just looking to find uh, the other stuff I'm doing, I just recently launched my podcast, The Alchemical Tech Revolution. It's available now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if people want to go there to check that out or over to uh, my channel on Rockfin, that's R-O-K-F-I-N.com backslash Wayne McCroy and find The Alchemical Revolution over there too. Do you have a regular podcast release schedule at this point? I've been uh, planning on releasing a new episode every Saturday, so I should have something uh, coming out uh, later today, the day we're recording anyway, but uh, I'm sure that will have long since been out when this goes live. All right. So for everybody listening, when you log into comments, um, there will be links to all this. Again, the title of the book is The Demic of Pan. The word demic is D-E-M-I-C. You could probably look that up and learn a few things. Uh, Why don't we... Start out with the intro, Jason. Images and social policy. In this study, we attempt to identify and assess the images of man that are fundamental organizing principles of, one, our society, and or, two, of key civilizations that have contributed to it. All public and private policy decisions necessarily embody some view or compromise of views about the nature of man, society, and universe. The kinds of educational systems and goals a society sets up, the ways in which it approaches the problems of material distribution, poverty, and wealth, how it treats the welfare of its citizens, the priorities it gives to various human needs. All these aspects and many more are affected by the image of humankind that dominates the society. Precisely how we cannot say with detailed accuracy, which is why metaphors, myths, allegories, Theories, all of which attempt to express an image, are useful. But in a very real way, all policy issues are issues relating to fundamental assumptions about the nature of man and his concerns. Excerpt from Changing Images of Man, Pergamon Press, 1981. Right, so let's jump in where the rubber meets the road, Wayne, because I notice you have an image which rightly states that an archetype is being invoked. So as we start this conversation, let's make a point. The human mind matters. What the human mind believes matters. What the human mind thinks matters. The emotions from human beings matter. And when you put them in mass, they matter all the more. And when you put a whole world in front of an idea and they accept or don't, these are some of the most powerful things that we will face in the coming era that is dawning right now. Let's talk, Wayne, a minute about invoking an archetype, which is basically doing what? It's getting a human mind to accept an idea. Oh, absolutely. That's it. That's exactly what an archetype is for. Now, an archetype, uh, for anybody who's not quite clued in onto what this is, this is actually a an idea 
okay, or, or a principle that can affect the human mind on an unconscious level. It's like inherently built into us. We, we have uh, the inherent ability to recognize the archetype on a subconscious level, but not on a conscious level. And uh, this has been referred to, you know, in many different aspects of, of study by different names. Now, uh, you know, people in the occult era of things or, or the occult side of things would call this the Akashic record or something similar to that. Uh, whereas, you know, all of these metaphysical type principles are bound up in, in other things, like in the area of what we would consider our mainstream science. Nowadays, they would call it genetic memory or epigenetic memory. Uh, or, you know, if you go to uh, different cultures like uh, native cultures, they would refer to this as, uh, you know, the, the spirit of your ancestors or, or some similar idea. Okay. Like these ideas are understood on an unconscious level by mankind. This would be what an archetype is. So you see a certain symbol or uh, a certain situation or story represented, and your mind will inherently pick up on an underlying meaning that transcends through time and culture uh, that's associated with this. But you won't pick up on that on a conscious level, especially if you're not familiar with the stories. But this will affect you on a subconscious level. So it does affect your mind. But, uh, you know, even though you have no conscience uh, kind of uh, recollection of this thing, it will affect you and it will affect your behaviors. And these people that are in positions of control in this world, they understand this uh, aspect of human psychology very well, and they utilize it all the time. That's why things like symbols are so important. I mean, it's, it's an entire language that most people are not versed in at all, uh, the language of symbology. This is why things like corporate logos usually have certain design aspects and features to them. And, and this even reaches beyond just like shapes and, you know, what we would uh, view as regular symbols because words are symbols too. Uh, so language is another thing that that's invoked in this process as well. And other things that are even simpler, things like color uh, that people often overlook. Colors uh, often represent archetypal ideas too. So all of these things combined together can be used to kind of steer the uh, public consciousness in ways that it doesn't perceive on a surface level, but it does nonetheless affect their behaviors. And that's what this, uh, you know, ruling class or, you know, this quote unquote elitist class or whatever it is you want to call them. I call them the dark occultists. Uh, this is exactly the kinds of things that they, they leverage against society. And, uh, you know, they invariably always draw back on ancient mythology as well. So it's important for us to study and understand some of these older myths and aspects of our society and cultures so that we have a better understanding on a surface level of what it is that's being done to us. And that's exactly uh, what I have uh, pointed out in this book as far as uh, specific archetypes that have been leveraged against us uh, to create and bring about this, this change in the world. So that's what we're going to be discussing here today. You know, I'm sitting here trying to figure out a way to illustrate the power of an archetype. It's not an easy thing to do, but what you've got to realize is these ideas precede us by so many generations that some of these archetypes are probably darn near as old as human beings have been here in this place, however long it is. It's like this existing meaning that all of society has always known will always know, probably, I guess you never know where the future is going, but there is a powerful subtext that, like Wayne was saying, your immediate conscience is affected by it, but somewhere down deep, uh, that archetype has a massive effect. So if I was going to choose a word as an idea of language to show the power and try to tap an archetype that's as powerful as I can think of, consider the word mother or mom. I could say a lot of things about a lot of things, but when I get serious and I use the word mother or mom when I'm talking, everyone can instantly relate because every one of us had a mother. And the archetypal structure that has gone through every myth, every everything since the beginning time is now being invoked. And Wayne, that feels to me like I was 100 yards from the target, but I can't really fathom out a better way to demonstrate it. No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it is something that's kind of hard to define, like in a, a very objective type way. And that's why, uh, you know, you have uh, psychologists like Carl Jung uh, have actually 
been the ones that have promoted these ideas in the modern era here. Uh, Jung was a, a famous psychologist, and uh, he was also, most people don't know this, an alchemist. And he drew a lot of these ideas of archetypes and things from very much earlier, earlier ideas. Uh, so that being the case, uh, he, he kind of tried to quantify them in the modern era as what he named archetype. Okay, so uh, this is where the term archetype comes from in the modern era. I mean, the, uh, the concept itself predates the modern era, but uh, this is what's been handed to us by somebody in the know. Uh, so he understood how uh, these different ideas could affect the human mind in different ways and on different levels. And, and this stuff has always been taught throughout uh, many of the different secret schools coming forward through history. Uh, from back in the, the days of uh, the mystery schools uh, back in antiquity. So uh, a lot of these ideas, they do predate our written history, and they probably do go back as far or if not even further than, you know, humankind itself. So it, it's kind of hard to really give a, a strict definition as to what an archetype is, but it's it's a subjective thing, and that's the whole point of it. A lot of these things are subjective, not objective. And we've been taught to think in terms of the strictly objective in our modern society. That's what the quote, quote unquote, modern science is all about. It's about quantifying and measuring everything on an objective level. And not everything is quantifiable in that way or objectively uh, measurable. So this is one of the more subjective ideas, but uh, it doesn't negate the power of this subjective idea, the fact that it can't be measured or quantified in a sense. Although these people in positions of power, they have attempted to quantify this and they've succeeded in certain ways in measuring the effects of it, but without directly measuring the archetype itself. Uh, and, and that's kind of demonstrated in the things we've seen going on the past two years here. And that's exactly what we're talking about. But, uh, you know, the terminology you brought up, Crow, of uh, saying the word mother, well, that does invoke an image in people's minds, right? Because it's something that's common to all of us and we all have this uh, inherent thought or feeling or association uh, that's that's intrinsically tied to that. And the word mother is actually the root word for many other words, including matter, right? Matter is derived from the same root word as mother. Uh, so, you know, we sit here, uh, you know, in the realm of physical matter, and uh, we could all see these different aspects to the word mother related with that, because it's about about generation, about birth, about uh, you know manifestation in existence. So it's it's there's a lot of different meanings that are subtly attached to the word that we don't necessarily think about on a conscious level when we hear it, but the associations are there, and it invokes the thoughts in our mind on a subconscious level. So. That being the case, we understand certain principles of the word being said because of that. So that also ties back to the idea that words are actually symbols as well and could represent different archetypes. So, you know, there, there's a lot involved in this. And this comes back to some of the, uh, the basic tools that uh, through years of study and through conversation and stuff that we've come to understand on a very basic level. Things like uh, what they would call twilight language, things like symbology. And things like archetypes and, and mythological representations of things. Uh, so these things are very important. And most people don't have a foundational uh, basic knowledge of this stuff. And it's really necessary in the modern era to help us uh, kind of have a little bit of discernment as to things going on in the world around us. Consider, I'm sitting here trying to figure out a way to illustrate just how overwhelmingly powerful the idea of an archetype is. And so I started to think about myth because myth is almost always archetype rich, but think of maybe Christianity, the stories that we've heard our whole life from the New Testament or the Bible, both the Greek myth and the tales from the New Testament of the Christian Bible. It's this time way back that none of us have an experience with, but these archetypal stories have been told to the point where we almost have an image of our mind. Uh, in, in terms of myth, there was this heroic time supposedly, that we know very little about, and yet even the ideas within that myth have permeated modern culture. Like if I say to someone, oh, that was a Herculean effort, everybody knows what I mean. 
and Disney made sure of it. We all know who Hercules is. We know about the 12 labors. These archetypes are from a time that we know almost nothing about, and yet we have this visceral image. And when you get up into religion, all the more so, because it's one thing to be interested in a myth, but when you get up to religion, you're taking that on board in a more substantive way. I don't know how else, but you know, it's, you're pulling it into your heart. You're pulling it into your beliefs and it is so powerful, but I think we can maybe move on from archetypes, but it's a critical thing to consider now in the modern era when media is in lockstep. So it doesn't matter what channel you're on, really doesn't matter what movie you're watching most of the time. There's this commonality of messaging coming through and it's nonstop and there's never going to be a time until the world changes drastically when it's not 24-7 coming at you. It's embedded everywhere. There's a picture of an ad. There's an app that I'm using on my phone. There's a website that I just hit. Oh, the news is on. Oh, there's a new movie I got to see. And you will see that all of it is like a huge spider web. And the the little threads are going out and attaching into these well-known ideas that have an effect on human consciousness. But that's the best I can do for now, Wayne. It's important to note uh, how important these things are, too, because the bad guys use them against us pretty much everywhere, every day. No doubt. And I would underscore what Jason just said, that the, the most common example that I notice, and other people probably notice other things, that's the genius use of an archetype. What you take away may not be what I take away, but the effect is still similar, is fear. How do you elicit fear? Now, remember back to shows that we've done where we're trying to get into the idea of casting a spell, which is no different than me saying to all of you, blue ball. Hey, think about a blue ball right now. There's a blue ball bouncing blue ball, blue ball, blue ball. So many listening right now consciously had an image viscerally of a blue ball. And so this underscores what we're, what are we saying when we say a spell? Well, another thing you should know is in third grade, you learned how to spell to create words and words are magic. And so these are the ideas that we're coming at, but in the modern era, and I don't know if you feel the same way, I would say the vast majority of all the effort is to instill fear, to get that high emotional state, because that is the fertilizer where a spell can be planted. Oh, I definitely agree with that. It's the most primal emotion uh, that is the most easily invoked in people. So it, it does have a, a definite effect on people. And, and the archetypes and ideas that they use to invoke this are tried and true through all different eras. I mean, this has been going on from time immemorial. There's always been, as far back as we could see, this controlling class of sorts uh, that has manipulated the, the masses with many of these same type of motifs and fear is always one of the key emotions among them that's that's utilized in this way for people so uh, they craft these different archetypes and stories uh, together to invoke this fear response from people because if you incite this fear response from people it causes what's called a flight or fight response in people uh, so this is a basic survival principle it's a a technique of putting people back into a primitive state of mind or an animal state of mind. It makes them responsive, reactive. That's the proper term for it. And that's exactly where these controllers want us. They want us to be reactive. They don't want us to use critical thinking to solve problems or to think things through and understand, hey, you know what? This looks like nonsense to me. I'm not going to be afraid of it. They don't want us to do that. They want us to just react on a very visceral level. And that's why they invoke these archetypal type ideas in a sense. And uh, fear has been the number one emotional state that they've used to control people throughout all of time. Uh, so, you know, we, why is it any different today? It's not. It's just that our modern education system and our, our modern way of thinking has kind of made these ideas look silly to us. Uh, and it's been engineered this way on purpose to keep people ignorant of these inherent natural energies that are all around us, uh, that these controllers of this place utilize against us all the time. So, you know, that that's kind of my thoughts on the situation it's, there too. You know, Wayne, it's so clever though. And the, what you just said about reacting is so important. When you are put in a position where you have to react in a way you've been made a slave, 
You are no longer saying, what am I going to do next? You're saying, oh my God, this happened. Now I've got to react to that. In other words, if the right stimulus is put at you, your reaction in many cases will be predictable. And it's almost like to be forced into a reactionary state is to be slaved out in a way, but it gets worse because we all love the culture all over the world. Mostly now we're, I mean, movies and entertainment are slowly, even your car has an infotainment screen. Now it's going to be the overwhelming driving force as we head for the metaverse or they make a run for it, whether we get there or not, but consider a thing like star Wars, much loved. I don't care what you think about it. You, you know, if someone makes a reference or you, you're going to know that that was star Wars, what's that tale about? Well, the good guys are fighting the black bad guys. Well, take a book, Lord of the Rings. Most people are familiar with that because if you didn't read the books, there's been movies about it. What's going on there? Well, there's this evil guy and it's the same archetype all over each time. And so in our minds, we get involved in these things, but then we say, yeah, but it's just a fiction tale, a novel. It's just a movie about a Jedi that doesn't exist, but below the surface, the archetype that's there, it's real. If I had to ask anybody in light of what we've experienced in the last 15, 20 years, is there a battle in this world, dark against light, so-called good and evil? Though I don't like that descriptive term. Is it real? And you know that it is. Somewhere in your body, you know that it is. And there is the archetype that's been thread through so many times. The only problem is, is when Luke Skywalker beats the bad guys, because almost always they, they beat it, it's like a pressure release. I got involved in this archetype. This fake thing that I'm walking, watching that I enjoy turned out this way. And now I can just kind of breathe a sigh of release. It's all worked out. The storyline is gone. I'm satisfied the good guys won, or maybe they didn't. But there's a real life when you walk away from that screen where the very archetype that's been employed is still at hand, still playing out. And I think it's a critical thing to consider. Oh, I definitely agree. Uh, it does have a long-term lasting effect upon your mind, your subconscious mind, especially. So, you know, that being the case, it will affect the way you behave and act. So even if you're just watching this as a type of entertainment, which is one of the more, you know, popular ways that they, they use these different programming motifs and make mo- no mistake about it, uh, a lot of times it is a programming motif um, that they're using and employing there for the masses, you will eventually react to what it is that you're shown on screen. Even if you're just looking at it as the terms, oh, it's just escapism or, you know, it's just, you know, I just wanted to watch the movie for my own enjoyment or whatever. That's all well and good, but understand that something is embedding a principle into your mind and it's going to stick with you and it lasts way beyond uh, the duration of watching that film per se or engaging in that form of entertainment. And that, that's why they, they use entertainment so much as a programming medium for people with these different uh, types of methodologies. So, you know, that that's essentially a place that's rich and ripe for the use of archetypes is in, in the entertainment. And they are trying to shift us towards an all entertainment all the time type of society uh, because of this reason, it's the easiest place for them to get away with doing this stuff and still having plausible deniability about the things they're attempting to accomplish. So that that's one of the main reasons they use that as a platform for this. You know, consider, you know, watching something that is so patently fiction and ridiculous, but that archetype is going on. And so that's almost a dismissive turn for your mind. I know this is fake. This is almost so silly that I can't watch it. And yet that archetype is running below the surface. There's a bad guy. There's a good guy. Death in modern Hollywood movies is a big one. Consider John Wick. I went to look up because I figured when they were making the movie, they were probably going for the top violence of any movie. I wasn't sure. So I was going to see how many people got blasted to death. And I forget what the numbers were, but this is another thing. Um, How is it that we've come to a point where something's so gruesome and violent that if there was any inkling in the real world that you live in, that anything like this was ever happening, you would be stunned off your feet. You would be running in horror. You would be looking for a world to change that immediately. And yet here we are tuning in. Someone's going to get a headshot every five seconds. So this kind of illustrates the power of archetypes and how media uses them. But what I want to do here, Wayne and Jason is since we're in hour one, I want to jump over chapter one, if you guys follow my logic there. Let's pick up in chapter two, and let's talk a little bit about these old archetypes, the Greek mythology of Pan. And if nobody's catching on 
why Pan is here. Think of the world right now. What are the big words? What's the title of this book? The Demic of Pan. Just reverse it around. And now you know why we're going to talk about, well, what they're calling it now, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Why the hell do we have the box saga? What is it with goats? What is it with, I mean, Wayne, I think it's arguable that there were points, as far as I can tell, in a time I never lived in, as far as I know, that Pan was a major player in the thought processes of certain cultures. And then when we think of the box saga and other things, there is a definite archetype and a definite reason. We see the goat and there is a definite reason why in this time we're starting to see images of the goat and we have this new saying to make goats cool, greatest of all time. Matter of fact, it would not surprise me if in 50 years we came back and no one had ever heard of Jesus or the Christian Bible and everyone was bowing down to a goat. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. And I know it's a bit much to hear, but what do you think, Wayne? Well, definitely. I mean, if you even think of the term pantheism, right? Well, pan is inherent in pantheism. And this does uh, actually kind of uh, infer back to an earlier age, okay? An earlier period in human history uh, where people were, quote unquote, worshipped many gods, so to say. So uh, when you're talking about pan, the idea of pan, this is an idea that's related to an earlier time or an earlier era. And it could be considered synonymous with the age of Aries. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an archetype that represents this age wherein man was more centric towards uh, natural ideas more or studying the way that nature operates and finding deism or uh, deistic ideas, I should say, or finding God in the natural realm around them. So uh, this was a time where man was largely associating things with this nature idea, and Pan was always represented as the god of nature back in those days, in those early times. So, uh, you know, the goat idea uh, transcends that for different reasons, and we'll get into that as we move forward here. But uh, going back to an earlier time, the idea of Pan represented the age of Aries. And then uh, when we get to uh, the Christian era, this is the age of Pisces, right? So, we see this switch over from these ideas inherent with Pan or uh, what we would call heathen ideas, so to say. And I hate that term too, but that's the best way to describe it because that's what's been brought forward uh, in this, this modern era for it. These different heathen type ideas where they, they looked at the natural order of things and kind of uh, inferred God in nature around them. Uh, so this is what uh, really brought about the archetype of Pan early on. Okay, in, in earlier ages here. So it's it's also represented in, in the sky clock. And, and the symbolism runs deep on many different levels. So like that, that's the whole thing. Uh, there's layers upon layers of meaning with this stuff. But uh, essentially what has happened here is uh, we've seen this the changeover of ages between the age of Aries, which would be the age of Pan or, or invoking this archetype of Pan, and the age of Jesus Christ, okay, the Christian era, the age of Pisces. So this all happened in a very short window of time. Uh, and this switchover that happened changed things on a fundamental level here within society itself and within culture. Uh, so we see that uh, this switch of ages kind of shifted uh, the focus of mankind away from this, this nature worship, so to say, or these naturalistic ideas and gave us something different uh, and, and something that we could say is a little better in an alchemical sense, right? It gave us a better archetype uh, to work with in the age in which it was meant to work with. And all this ties back to the hermetic principles, the, the principle of rhythm, right? How it all works in a cycle. And these cycles are attached to uh, the time they're intended for. And even the Bible points this out in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything has its time and everything is beautiful in its time, right? So we see here there was a time and a purpose for this era of Pan or this age of Aries and these different ideas. But then, you know, we had this shift over, switch over of ages into the age of Pisces. And now there's new ideas that have been brought forward with that. And it was beautiful in its time. And we're once again, getting to a point of a transitory phase here where we're switching between ages again. And that's why there's so much chaos 
in the world around us. And there's there's other reasons for that too. And we'll we'll get there as we continue on uh, because these are important ideas to think about. But uh, essentially, the nuts and bolts of this whole thing, the, the pan archetype going back had represented something that was beautiful in its time. But the way they're representing it now is an inversion of that. It's it's out of its time. It's not supposed to be in this time frame. And it's it's not beautiful at this point. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It would be considered an ugly thing at this time. And that's exactly what they're trying to invoke here uh, because they're trying to break the natural order of things. And that's the subtitle of the book, Breaking the Natural Order. It's the Demic of Pan, Breaking the Natural Order. Uh, that's what they're attempting to do here. So, you know, we could see that they've leveraged this archetype and they're, they're using an inversion of it, which is a total perversion of what the original meaning was. And they're using it in a way that goes contrary to the way the natural order works. So this is about total inversion, just like everything else is about with these dark occultists that run this place, right? They're always seeking to try to uh, usurp the creator or usurp the natural order of things in order to control it themselves and become God themselves. This is exactly what they're trying to invoke here using this archetype at this time. And, uh, you know, we could get into uh, the, the dynamic that I pointed out with this, if you want to go there, because we, you know, it's kind of a lengthy tale to tell, but it's an important one. You know, you've, you've got some, I got to get Jason in here because he's been going over this book with you on, on the other podcasts that I don't have time to do with you guys, but you've got a, uh, a quote from GK Chesterton, who was a famous Christian apologist. And he quoted, it is said truly in a sense that Pan died because Christ was born. And it's hard for people to think about what we're talking about, but it's brilliant the way you showed that there was an era where Pan was an important part of basically giving people a way to think about the creation. And if I talk about the creation, I say there's no lie in nature. What's interesting about Pan is he represented that very thing. But was there a lie in Pan? If you go look at those myths, is it is, is it all honesty? And in one sense, it kind of is, and in another, it's not. It's almost like taking the foibles of how human beings act in nature and demonstrating all these things can happen. But when we come back to the words, I'm with you. Why are we back to Pan? You know, it's the heroic Greek myths, a time we know nothing about. Why is it back now? Why has it been queued up? Pandemic. Why are we, why are we calling it that? Why was there an airline called Pan Am, Pan American? And think about what that meant, uh, the airlines, what they have meant in our world. Suddenly, we could go everywhere. Back in the Pan Am days, there was like this whole new world was opened up. And if you follow the storyline all the way to September of a certain year, you begin to realize what's really going on with our ability to have airlines. And you can link it back to these ideas and you constantly find them. But I would ask the question to both of you, if we did come from a supposed age called Aries, and we got into the fish ideas, which I think we can demonstrate, that would be the Christian era. And right now, we're all pretty sure that the era is changing. Well, it's not pretty sure. You can see it happening. It's definitely changing. Now, we could argue, is it artificial, or is 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 someone forcing this along, or are we with the sky clock? And I can have 10 guests on. They're all going to tell me something different about the age we're in. Some of it will be quite convincing, but you said a thing that's critically important here. They're constantly trying to usurp the power of the creator. And I always illustrate it like this. First of all, put in your mind the idea of Ready Player One. All the people in that metaverse are under control, lock, stock, and barrel while they're in that metaverse. Who, who controls that? Well, in that storyline, it's some clever code guy that was a little off, off his rocker. That was the god. He had literally usurped the reality for everyone that went into that metaverse. That's what we're facing here. You cannot find a lab in this world or a technology that can make a fish from scratch. You can't do it. Nobody can invent a new tree from zip. It can't be done. The creator made those things. And as long as that's true, then the creator is who the creator is. But if you can make all this fake crap, all this digital, all this technology-driven, science-driven stuff, if you made it and created it, you own it. So all these things that get created that we fall in love with and can't do without, like maybe a car would be a good example. You know how hard it would be for any of us to live without cars in the United States after all these decades of that's the way of life? Well, guess what? 
we've come to a point where someone who created these cars is now going to ask you to pay the piper. There's going to be a bigger charge. There's going to be more at stake for you to, to use these goods and services. And that is the overreach of someone trying to usurp what you have automatically if you get out of your car and walk into the wooded area. Now you've walked back into the purview of the creator, but this is what we're talking about. And I don't know what you'd add there, Jason. Well, it makes me think that it's kind of scary that the concept of anything nature related was kind of drawn away from and kind of beaten out of us during the 20th century. But now it seems like for whatever reason, the controllers are trying to bring that back in again, but it doesn't seem to fit very well. Well, I think this would tie to the idea that uh, the, the nature idea, the pan archetype here, it's being inverted right now by the people in positions of control. So the attempt is to uh, draw a distinction between nature and what is man-made and trying to represent the man-made thing as being superior to the natural thing. And this is why I say they're using an inversion of the pan archetype here. And they've they've labeled this inversion of the pan archetype as the Baphomet or the Baphomet idea. Look at it. It's an inversion of Pan. Pan was always represented as a man in the upper half with the lower half of a goat. Well, Baphomet has the head of a goat. Uh, so it's an inversion. See, they, they play all these games with the symbology and stuff too. And most people would not pick up upon that idea, but it is, it's an inversion. So it's, it's showing that, uh, you know, this link between the as above, so below, but, uh, they're creating something new in the below here and trying to link it to the above rather than the other way around. So th- this is exactly the, the types of games that they're playing with these archetypes and with the uh, the switching of of the symbol, so to say, the inversion of it. Uh, and it's it's actually it's it's a very dark thing, and that's why these these people are what you would call practitioners of the left hand path. Uh, they're all about inversion or inverting the natural way of things, and they're trying to break the cycle. Uh, I think it might be kind of helpful to go into the story uh, associated with Pan here and how it relates to the modern age and the switchover of the ages between Aries and uh, the the age of Pisces so that people could understand a little better what's happening today. Uh, Do you want to go there? Could we go ahead and tell that story quickly? Let's do that, but let me make an observation. So from all we know, and we can argue all day whether there's an actual sky clock age change I say there is. I say it can be manipulated to some degree, but at the end of the day, um, the real creation will be the real arbiter and they can get away with what they can get away with. The point is, is if we are either in the age that followed Pisces or heading in, however you choose to look at that, that would be the age of man. That would be the age of the son of man, as alluded to in biblical terms. Go check out Dylan Sicoccio if you want to catch up on those ideas. But here we're back to the goat. What the hell's the goat doing? In the age of man, we know we're either there or getting there. We know this to be correct. We just don't know for sure. And that tells you something. We know all our maps are probably back to what? The age of Aries? We still got a Tropic of Capricorn in all our maps. That's probably somewhere around the age of Aries, thousands of years out of time. That proves that what we're saying, this inversion is going on. My point here is if we should be in the age of man, the man pouring the water in the sign of Aquarius, what follows? Well, the next one's going to be the water goat. Do you see the queue up? Do you see the hundreds, who knows, thousands of years in advance planning to come along, hijack a period, which is what's going on with us now, which should be the age of man, which should be a blossoming of human abilities and intentions. And it's being hijacked and goats and other things being laid over it. But guess what? we're done with this age, which will come, uh, there will be another goat, a water goat. But let's get back to where you wanted to go, Wayne. Where do you want to pick it up? All right. Well, to better illustrate that point, and, and what you just said there beautifully ties into exactly the story that I'm going to tell here and the connotation of the story in the modern age. So we're, we're going to look back, and this isn't refers directly back to uh, the archetype of Pan once again. So uh, Plutarch actually tells a tale of a ship captain named Thamus who was sailing around the Isle of Paxi on his way back to Greece. So Thamus is sailing his, his ship and he's got all kinds of people on board. He's got a full contingent of passengers on his ship. So he's sailing and he's out on the open water, sailing around the Isle of Paxi back towards Greece. 
and he hears a disembodied voice call his name from the ocean. Well, little did he know at the time that everybody else on board the ship heard this as well. Uh, so he ignored it the first time. Well, then it happens again. He hears his name being called by this disembodied voice. So this time he answers the voice. And the voice tells him, when you get just off of shore, you need to announce the great God Pan is dead. So he, he says to himself, he thinks to himself, well, maybe I'm just going crazy and hearing things. So he decided in his mind what he was going to do uh, with this information or with this tale is he would let the weather decide his course of action. So if he got off of shore and the weather was bad, he wouldn't make this announcement. But if the weather was fair, then he would make this announcement. So as uh, his ship got back to just offshore, the weather was fair. So he decided, okay, I'll go ahead and, and stick with um, you know my decision here. And he announced to the people on the land, on the coast there, the great God Pan is dead. And there was weeping and lamenting and cries and stuff like that all throughout all the people. And the thing is, Thamus, the, the ship captain here, didn't realize at the time that uh, the entire contingent of everybody on board the ship had heard this too. So uh, this, this further backed up the idea. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't hearing things. This was a true announcement. Okay. So anyway, the, the point of this story is this is actually reported by Plutarch as not only a myth or a representation of a myth, this is reported as a true history, as a true historical fact. And this actually occurred within the lifetime of Jesus Christ here on earth. So many of the early uh, Christian theologians and Christian mystics understood what this whole idea was about. Uh, they understood that uh, this announcement that the great God Pan is dead meant the birth of a new Messiah or the birth of a new age. And they understood, you know, having looked back now uh, that this happened and occurred during the time of Christ, this created a nexus point of the changeover of ages. And I had to come up with my own terminology for this because I, I was unaware if anybody else had explored this idea before or, you know, had, had come up with a term for it. So I call this the pan-Christ dynamic. So this is what had occurred. This represents a window, a small window in the switchover of ages wherein uh, different archetypes can be manipulated or used uh, to bring in different ideas into a new era. So this was actually, this all happened according to the natural cycle of things, right? So we see the end of the age of Aries and the beginning of the age of Pisces. And it's it's not always a clear delineation as to an exact changeover date with things. There's always this window of opportunity. And I would uh, say this window was probably maybe lasted a couple hundred years uh, around the birth of the, the Christian church and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I would say that just that general time frame, a couple hundred years, I, I can't say for sure. I haven't done enough of the deep uh, digging into the astrological side of things with this to fully understand that. But uh, it creates this little nexus point, this window in which the changeover of ages happens. So this is that pan-Christ dynamic. I had to come up with a name for it because what's happening in the modern era right now, and we'll see this because there's another idea inherent in this story. The name Thamus is derived from the same root word as Thomas, which means twin. So this invokes the idea of twin pillars, uh, the Gemini idea, all of this as well. So it's, it's putting an equation between or in a sort of equity between Pan and Christ, okay, as being co-equal uh, types of energies, so to say. If you think of this in terms of energies or ideas, that kind of thing. So it creates this foundational two-pillar system, right, on which the age changeover can happen. So uh, what's happening in the modern era now is we're seeing the inversion of this happening. And uh, we could probably get into this in hour two, because I think we might be coming close to time on hour one here. I, I got to add Go a couple things. I mean, you lay down so much, Wayne. Um, I'm going to actually take a quote from your book, which illustrates quite well what you were laying down about what you're calling the pan-Christ dynamic or the Christ-pan dynamic. And you bring up everyone who's familiar with the New Testament has read Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Remember Doubting Thomas? We have an idiom in our language because of the New Testament figure called Thomas. His name was Thomas Didymus. In the Greek, Didymus means twin, just to put into context what Wayne has said. But now let's consider the time that Wayne was referencing this last supposed age chain. Look what we see now. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, 
but I'm pretty good at logically working out what I can work out. And I don't know what age we're in. I can't prove it either way. I can think of so many good reasons to go one way and another. And when I look at the sky clock itself, I feel like a baby. I don't even trust those divisions. I don't, you know, there's problems everywhere. So how is it that in the modern era, someone like me can be so befuddled as not to be able to pin it down? So why would I think that the last age change was any different? In other words, was the pan-Christ dynamic introduced to speed along the change, or was it in reaction to an actual sky clock era, you know, time event that's occurring? The world is now rapidly changing. We're all going to go to a different place, but I'm going to pull a quote from Wayne's book, The Demic of Pan, from page 37. The most important interpretation to our discussion is as follows. Pan was a good shepherd and a musician, a piper, often concerned with leading flocks or herds with his piping. He was known for his ability to incite terror in cattle and humans alike, causing stampedes. This, in fact, is where the term panic comes from. Think about everything that was just laid down. We're talking about the the supposed death or the symbolic death of one shepherd and the ushering in of another shepherd. The one that should have went away, which is back in our lives now, the pan idea, uh, is actually the root word for panic. If I, if I asked everyone thinking, if you had to just make up a number that well symbolizes the word panic, <laughs> I don't even think I got to say it. I know everyone can count the ways. You see where this goes, but we got a little bit, Wayne. Okay, good. Uh, that way I could kind of get a little more into the idea of where we're at. And, and what's actually happening here in the modern era and why the invocation of the pan archetype here. Uh, so what we see happening right now uh, as a, a kind of a, uh, an inversion of this, this story or this, this last switchover of ages is we're seeing here what is an attempt by the uh, power structure, these dark occultists that run this place at uh, usurping this changeover of ages, because we are supposed to be entering into the age of Aquarius, right? The age of man, the ascension of man, the spiritual kind of uh, foundational idea of man, the spiritual enlightenment of man. And instead, what we see is they're trying to block this thing. And we would refer to this switchover of ages into the age of man as the great awakening. Well, they're trying to quell down this great awakening and replace it with something they're calling the great reset and how they're doing this on an occult level or on this uh, archetypal level with these manipulations in this, in, you know, inducing the, uh, the archetype of pan here is they're trying to uh, actually try to skip through the energies inherent of the age of Aquarius straight ahead to the age of Capricorn, which is represented by the goat. And that's why all the goat symbology and, you know, the uh, use of the pan archetype here, or what I would call the inversion of the pan archetype, uh, because if they were able to actually accomplish this, manipulating these energies in this way uh, and, you know, kind of uh, entrapping people's minds in a, a lower type animal state, because what's a goat? A goat is a herd animal. Well, that's how they think of us. And that's where they want us trapped. So they can't allow this great awakening to happen if they want to maintain their control of this place. So they're trying to usurp this idea and replace it with the energies inherent in the age of Capricorn. So that's exactly what they're trying to do through using this pan archetype. Now Uh, they're trying to close out the age of Christ or the age of uh, Pisces, so to say, uh, which if you look at the natural cycle of things, we're supposed to be entering the age of Aquarius, which would be, a further fulfillment of these things that Christ represents or that Christ taught us, right? Us being able to achieve greater things than he is what he told us. Uh, so, uh, you know, rather than, than being able to see the fulfillment of uh, these uh, few, uh, these, these full human potentialities that we have uh, through the Christ idea, they're replacing it once again with this pan idea or the inversion thereof trying to trap us into a mental state that's on par with animals, uh, which makes us more easily manipulatable and uh, makes us easier for capitulation to programming for them. I could actually offer something there, Wayne. I would love Um, to hear it. (laughs) What you're describing can be demonstrated. So what if an age change occurred and 
people who had so much power and reach with communication or service, however they do it, could manipulate what actually happens. In other words, if we asked, the sky clock is the creation, can anything override that? I would say probably no, but can it be messed with? Because we could be messed with, I would say yes. But here's the thing. How is it that we could either not quite be in an age or we are in an age and not be aware of it and have what we are living and thinking and breathing out of sync with where we should actually be? We should be either in or moving in to the age of the son of man. That's a big deal. Songs, phony songs by the hippies were written about it. Um, By the way, as the fifth dimension, two levels above us, apparently. Think of the equinox and the clock. This is what I'm talking about, power and reach. The equinox is a big deal. The the major points of the sun in any given year is a huge deal. It is the arbiter of everything we will experience. Break it down to its basics. We will experience night and day. It's a big deal. For 12 hours-ish, it will be light, and then it's going to be dark. Things will grow now, but they won't grow then. Things will be warm. Well, blow it out to a year. We've got four seasons in most places. These are foundational to what it means to live here. And yet, it is currently 3-12, March 12, 22, as I record this. They just told me on the news two days ago that on the 20th, I will have an equinox. They put it across the country. It's not true. The equinox that you experience is wholly due to geography. If you are south of me, it will be a day or two earlier. If you're north of me, the other way. I hope I didn't reverse that. In other words, it's a day's difference if you're north or south of where I am. We proved this. Many members of this podcast helped to prove this to the point where the Naval Observatory, which keeps track of time, locked us all out because they didn't want us knowing when the sun rose anymore because they could see what we were working out. The truth is the equinox is not on March 20th. For me, it is on March 17th. Why would anyone lie about such a thing? Oh, there's more. Ladies and gentlemen, there's more. There's going to be a time switch. They're going to take our clock and they're going to change it an hour, not just at this equinox, but at every equinox that has ever happened for my lifetime, mostly, and who Lord knows how long it will go on. So when we get to these critical so-called days of balance, equinox, equal night, this one time of the year, which happens twice a year, one on the upswing, one on the downswing is going to be jacked. They're going to take our clock and change it, ensuring that we are ripped out of the cycles of time that we would otherwise be a part of. Not only that, they are relying on our laziness to accept that the equinox will be on the 20th. And if we have changed our clocks as we were good little boys and girls, and we have accepted the wrong day, how can we possibly hope to get back in sync with what's actually going on? And I think this is a hands-on right now, real-time demonstration of what Wayne is describing over instead of a year and era. And I totally concur with your description there. And that was very helpful because that does demonstrate, uh, you know, kind of the micro scale version of this same thing. Right. Uh, It happens same on the macro as above, so below. So uh, these same ways that they've been jacking with time on the small scale here, you know, switching up hours and days, it's probably been done on a grander scale. Uh, so, you know, we could see now, is this, you know, part of the natural cycle when this pan Christ dynamic happens, as I named it, uh, I think it's part of the natural order of things, right. Where we have this designation of time, this window, uh, between, you know, the transition between ages where certain things can happen. And is it manipulatable? I think that's probably a thing too, because they're certainly trying to manipulate it, uh, whether it's provably manipulatable or not by man is a different story. But we see it demonstrated. They've been trying to jack with time and cycles for as uh, at least the length of our lifetimes, uh, with the you know the daylight savings time bit and all of this, and the different calendar changes, and way back even beyond our lifetimes, this has been going on. So that being the case, doesn't that kind of suggest that maybe there's a macro scale version of this where you could maybe manipulate uh, the switchover of ages? And I, I think that's what they're attempting to do now, whether they'll be successful at it or not is another story. But I could tell you just by, you know, delving into the intention there and, you know, understanding these things like Crow just laid out, that is their intention. They want to try to jack this whole thing, right? They want to try and quell down this great awakening and replace it with a great reset 
or as Klaus Schwab more recently described it, the great narrative. And they use their terms very carefully. Narrative, delineating, you know, a fictional story. So they're trying to replace the reality with fantasy. Once again, as we see so much throughout this whole thing, and they're trying to use these alchemical principles to create the inversion of uh, these alchemical processes to do so and create artificial things. So they're artificially trying to jack with the natural cycle of things. Because if you go by the natural cycle, we're supposed to transition from the age of Pisces into uh, what would be the age of Aquarius, which would represent the full potentiality of the human being, right? Well, rather than do that, they're trying to leverage this back into a state of control and they're trying to engineer us into what would be considered a herd animal, invoking this uh, Capricorn idea, the age of Capricorn. And there's a very good reason why we still have the Tropic of Capricorn on all of our maps, right? Uh, this isn't something I've fully explored because honestly, I don't have like the astronomical or astrological chops to really take a good run at it, but they're jacking with the sky clock. They're trying to anyway. They're, they're trying to jack with the, the cycles of time here. They're trying to uh, manipulate, minds. right? In our minds, they're trying to manipulate the cycles of time. And if they could actually accomplish this and break this cycle of time, well, then they've effectively broken the natural order. And that's the ultimate spit in the eye to the creator. Uh, so that's exactly what they're trying to do here. They're right. attempting to usurp the natural cycle of things and replace it with an artificial cycle. Let me jump in as we're getting close. And that's well said. So if you can't be a part of the creation, what will you, if you're too lazy to understand what an equinox and what a beautiful, perfect creation was given us, and you can't be bothered with that, what will control you? This other man-made technological thing? Because if you go that way, which we are all going, then there's a new God, so to speak. It's a lower level God, but it's all enveloping. Because you need your dinner, you're going to use the system. You need your paycheck, you're going to use the system. And there's another couple things as I get ready. It's time to wrap, right, Jason? It is. Okay, so I want to point a thing out. You may not be accepting the importance of the sky clock. I've gone six ways to Sunday to try to prove to you that it is indisputable. I've talked about day and night. I've talked about seasons. I just pointed out the equinoxes. Oh, what big deal is the equinox? I'll tell you what big deal the equinox is. Until it happens, the largest expenditure of energy that ever happens anywhere waits for that day. And then the explosion of energy is beyond measure. Births, everything greening, growing, blooming, just this massive release of energy that makes any fake nuclear weapon seem like child's toys, if you want to be honest about it. But get back to the older way of thinking. With each age, there was a way of thinking where there was an archangel. This is part of the reason why I broke down the John Travolta movie, Michael. There's still a video posted on the website of my recent effort, having been away from video for so long, to try to demonstrate why it's a big deal. Not only are they showing you more than you think you're being shown, they're pointing out that the archangel of this time this story is taking is Michael. Well, that used to be common knowledge. Who's the archangel? Go look up right now what archangel is for what supposed age, and then start to work out how is it that these were big ideas. And lastly, in my final effort for this hour to point out what a big deal the sky clock is, why in the hell would they lie to you about the day of the equinox is and then turn around and jack the, the, the clock an hour, both times, once in one direction, once back in the other? Why in the hell do we go grab maps and every one of them is at least a couple thousand years out of time and date? The low point of the sun is not in the Tropic of Capricorn. The high point of the sun is not in the Tropic of Cancer. As a matter of fact, most people doing astrology still use that basic foundational idea, which was true thousands of years ago. I'm reasonably sure the high point of the sun would be the Tropic of Gemini. In other words, when the sun reaches its highest point for the year in and around June 21-ish, that sun will be in front of Gemini. When it hits the low point around Christmas, 21st-ish, it would be Sagittarius. And every map in this world is telling you a lie. You're looking at two tropics that haven't existed in the way that you're being shown the high point and low point of the sun for thousands of years. Now you can work out why the sky clock is a big deal. And I don't know how else to go at it. Jason, do you want to add anything in before I have Wayne give his 
info. So to finish up on the inversion idea, it's interesting that uh, we can look at the inversion of nature is exactly what we're seeing nowadays with everything going to this artificial digital everything. Now, the metaverse is on the way. You and I and Wayne have all gone over this idea. And, you know, it, it's a bit ironic that one of the big representations in our time is the Spielberg movie Ready Player One. But it's so far. I, I mean, it illustrates the idea of things in an overarching way. You know, the world's such a crappy place to be. Just please plug me in. Um, that's probably a pretty spot on effort where they want to go. But there are other aspects of it that are so far from where this could head out. Wayne, I think we're there. Please give your information for your podcast and your book again, and everybody listening in comments, we'll make sure all the links are there. All right. Well, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, it'll probably be hitting the other greater book market uh, anytime now. So people could just uh, uh, you know, type the name in your search engine of the book or my name, and it should come up and you should have various places to buy it from. Uh, the Alchemical Tech Revolution, the podcast, is now available on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so people can check it out there. And I do have a feature on there. If you'd be interested in donating, making a monthly donation to the podcast uh, to help keep it going, because, you know, well, internet service costs money and, uh, you know, research takes a lot of time. And, you know, recording these types of shows takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, it would be much appreciated, so you could go ahead and and make a donation there. That would be much appreciated. Or uh, it could also be found over on rockfin.com. That's R-O-K-F-I-N.com backslash Wayne McCroy. And the Alchemical Tech Revolution is available there. And I also do uh, live streams and stuff on that platform and post other materials there for people to check out. So uh, I appreciate it. As always, gentlemen, always a pleasure to be here. All right, there it is. And I'll reiterate, you've got to support what you feel is important if the powers that be in this world get their way, the numbers, the writing is on the wall for podcasts like this or anything that resembles this to the point where about half of my time I'm strategizing what to do next when the thumb screws get a little bit tighter. So if you find value in what Wayne's doing, support it. The more support, the more chance that will go on for some period of time. That brings hour one of 397 to a close. Um, I hope to see you all on the other side for the full member two-hour, two-hour-plus program. We've got a lot more to cover. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.